Hello, and welcome to episode 63 of the Movie Brats Podcast. I am Carter, and joining me, as always, is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? Better late than never. We're I counting know. down our best of 2021. And let me say, really, one of the reasons that we're doing it so late, and it's not on my list, but I have been dying to see a pitch upon where Sethical's film Memoria which had a really weird and still has a weird release strategy where it was released for one week at the end of 2021 in New York City. And the original idea was that it was only gonna play on one screen in the entire United States at a time. And I think it went from New York to Chicago and then it stopped for like three months and there was no news about what happened. And finally, months later, Neon, had a new plan where they released it in mul- on multiple screens, but pretty much theaters were playing it one week at a time only. And it still supposedly won't, is never going to be released on home video in the US. Uh, I really like the Ever? movie. That's what they say Holy shit. in the US. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I very much like the film. I'm a big fan of the director. Not my top five, but I felt like I had to see it. No, you're to... a completist in that way. Right. You feel like you would be doing the audience a disservice if you didn't see every movie. Right. <laughs> I mean, there's still major movies I didn't see from last year, but I've gotten to the point, I don't know about you, where I really don't feel the urge to watch all the Oscar nominees. Like the eyes of Tammy Faye, I never saw. I don't really feel like I need to. <laughs> no, literally some movie. of the results for the Oscars made me less likely to see those as far as like King Richard and Tammy Faye are concerned. You had you have a number of the major Oscar contenders and winners in your top five. Most of mine didn't get any nominations. Yes. Also, a theme of yours will be uh, discovered by the audience that many of them were under 90 minutes. Right. And also, you have not seen four of my five. <laughs> yes. Despite seeing, I think, 50 plus movies last year, uh, tells you something about the breadth that it's very, very difficult for people to consume every movie that comes out in a given year, even if you try to see every movie you possibly can. And I'll say that I could maybe argue that if I were really going to sit down and contemplate for a long time and make a really official top 10 list, maybe that wouldn't be exactly this top five in this order, but partially I wanted to include films that I think were very underseen from last year. Like, I mean, I think that the green Knight might be my number five. And I think that was kind of underseen, but my number five film really no one saw, I don't think. (laughs) Uh, But why don't you start this time, Carter? We're just going to do, these are our top five personal favorite films released in the u.s theatrically in 2021 yes so starting with my number five it is spencer directed by pablo lorraine which came out uh last november and got an academy award nomination for Kristen stewart for the lead performance um and that was sort of the most notable thing about it but uh, only Oscar nomination. It got, only Oscar nomination. I think Johnny Greenwood was, it was a real shame he didn't get nominated because I think the score for this movie is absolutely outstanding. Um, but this sort of takes over from where Pablo Lorraine left off with Jackie. It's becoming a theme for him, sort of depicting 20th century public facing women who sort of occupy political status. 
Um, in a lot of ways, I like this much more than Jackie, which I also really, really liked. But I thought the central performance by Kristen Stewart uh, was one of the best performances I've seen in years. And it's something that I'm, I'm getting very annoyed by the Academy Awards. I mean, it happened with this year where Best Actor and Best Actress were both won by people portraying real historical figures. Spencer obviously is no different to that. So it's becoming one of my big issues with the Oscars that apparently to be recognized, you have to play a character that the audience has some sort of reference to and compared the performance with the real person. But I think Spencer is a very atypical biopic, if you could even call it a biopic. Yes, it's not one of those ones that tries to get a sort of biographical Wikipedia page of this person's life. Um, it's it's not going to be, it's a, not like Baz Luhrmann's upcoming Elvis yes, film. Yes, it's like, let me, let me show you how Diana became Princess Diana and then what happened afterwards. It just focuses on a, a weekend, a Christmas weekend with the royal family and just as sort of Diana's world is falling apart, you know, the public eye is on her, her husband has been unfaithful everyone knows about it and just sort of looks at this woman from a very sort of interior perspective and just tries to make us sort of as the audience understand what she's going through and you know how someone can seem to have everything on the outside but their world is falling apart and they're just sort of hanging by a thread and everyone is sort of against them and they're paranoid and see it's almost it, a psychological horror film in oh some it, ways. it totally is and I mean, it's a super, super paranoid movie. Um, and Kristen Stewart is just so committed in the central role. Um, and I think it really improves as the movie goes on. And at the end, it becomes like very sort of like figurative, symbolic sort of in Diana's sort of personal sort of overcoming of her situation and becoming accepting of herself and the situation she's in and how she can move forward and sort of express her interiority to the world and show everyone sort of the person she really is. And I thought it was just so, so successful as a, as a look at this historical figure that I really was not interested in, didn't really know too much about Princess Diana. Um, her death, which was like the media event of the late 20th century. Yeah. was something that I barely remember. It didn't really make any sort of impact on me. So to take a historical figure that I was familiar with, but didn't really know anything about it. Didn't really care. And it became one of my favorite movies of the year. I think was a real, real achievement by Pablo Lorraine and, and Kristen Stewart. Um, I remember you having a positive reaction to this, obviously no, not yeah, quite as positive it. as mine. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't think it would be in my top 10 of last year, but I think what's interesting about, I mean, Kristen Stewart's like the number one thing that's great about this movie. Mm-hmm. And I think that I never quite got over that was Kristen Stewart, but I don't yeah. <laughs> think that's really a problem because part of the film and the performance is about her putting on a persona and there's like the public and the private yes. and that in a way Diana was kind of giving a performance, a performance in her exactly. life. Yes. And it's a completely committed performance. Uh, but I think that there's still somewhat of a performative quality to it but it totally works with and it you know and it works on the level that Kristen Stewart is someone who has dealt with a lot of media scrutiny and a lot of public eyes on her and sort of 
people wanting her to be a certain way because of the character in the Twilight movies that she portrayed is like, you know, the person that fans wanted her to be. So very similar situation to stuff Diana had to deal with. So it makes for a very interesting combination of actor and subject, uh, which I thought added a, a level to this movie that pushed it beyond what it what it might have been with a different actress portraying Diana. Um, and uh, beautifully shot in 16 yes. millimeter, the costumes, the production design, all, you know, exquisite. Yes. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> My number five film was also a film released by Neon. Uh, it's called The Killing of Two Lovers. Uh, it's an 85-minute movie, and it's written and directed by a man named Robert. How do we pronounce his last name? Uh, Mac- McGuigan? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> but it's uh, it's just an extremely good, small, intimate drama. It's about this couple that have mutually agreed that they're going to take a break from each other. They're not divorcing, but they're going to be separated for a while. And they've agreed that they can see other people, but you get the sense that the husband's not too crazy about this idea, but he's gone along with it. And the wife is in fact in a relationship with another man. This sounds a little bit like a movie we'll talk about later. (laughs) And the film opens as a great opening with the title being the killing of two lovers with the husband standing over his wife and her new lover pointing a gun at them in bed. Uh, So throughout the whole movie, there's this tension and almost the entire film that's 85 minutes long is set within a few miles in this really small town in America. And you see the houses and there's just this great expanse in the background of like mountains and the landscape. And there's this kind of, paradox of it being super you know you see a lot of things in the background but it's also very claustrophobic like there uh-huh. seems like these characters don't really have all this land and nowhere to go right and the performances are really strong and it's actors you may have seen before but not giant movie stars there's Clayne crawford who was on the lethal, lethal weapon yeah tv show uh, and it's just, I think, a really strong drama. It has an 82 on Metacritic. Both uh, Spencer and The Killing of Two Lovers are on Hulu. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw it in the theater last year, and I just thought it was a really strong movie. Um, not a fun movie. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's kind of a heavy one, but I think it's just, uh, it shows that you can have a film that's really small and intimate and short. And it can just be very powerful at the same time. You don't need giant special effects or giant movie stars or, you know, multiple locations. You can have a small film and it can really pack a punch. So my number five uh, is The Killing of Two Lovers. Mm-hmm. It was originally a Sundance movie, I see. Yeah, it premiered in 2020. 2020, yeah. Um, yes. This is a movie, I don't even know if I had heard of it um, until you mentioned it to me. I would have been, I guess, when you saw it sometime last year. Uh, still haven't gotten around to seeing it, but the fact that it's on Hulu and is available for streaming makes me more likely to see it, which you can say is one of the benefits of streaming, that it makes it easier to sort of catch up on stuff that you might have missed. Um, so my number four movie of last year was on a lot of lists, uh, number one, and was 
the favored for best picture for a really long time until suddenly it wasn't. Um, it is The Power of the Dog, directed by Jane Campion, um, which originally premiered at Venice and was released on Netflix streaming, I think, in December of last year, still available on streaming. Um, this is a movie that uh, I was aware had a lot of hype before I ended up seeing it, so sort of came into it with pretty high expectations. I'm a big fan of Jane Campion's work. The Piano is one of my you know, probably, I don't know where it would rank specifically, top 50 or 100, but it's a movie I really, really like and it's one of my favorite movies. So very high expectations for The Power of the Dog. Um, it wasn't quite what I expected, but in a very good way. Also has a very, very strong score by Granny, Johnny Greenwood, which it has in common with Spencer. Um, and one of, like Spencer, an incredible central performance, this time by Bendit Cumberbatch, um, as a very enigmatic um disagreeable quietly owner. threatening quietly, <laughs> quietly threatening. threatening yes and a performance that i hadn't really seen benedict cumberbatch deliver before um i think a lot of his previous roles had been very sort of intellectual and this is a very physical performance and when you say benedict cumberbatch as like rugged ranch hand it's not really something you think goes together but he it's something he really really pulled off um and the it's a character where the you know there's much more to him than you think at the start, and the sort of onion is slowly peeled back until the very end when you sort of see who this person really is and or why they are say, the way they are. Or you could say like the flower at the beginning, you know, it's like the layers of the flower, the petals. Yes. <laughs> and, and, I, and you can tell there's kind of a mystery and enigma to him from the very beginning that he's yes. very. He's not a very talkative person. He's enigmatic. You can tell yes. there's something he's hiding. Um, but also, in addition to the really strong central performance, this has incredible supporting roles with Kristen Dunst, uh, Jesse Plemons, and Cody Smith-McPhee. All who, Oscar nominated. Yes. So I was most familiar with, I think, from, was it the plan, the second Planet of the Apes movie? Yeah. Um, it was in uh, the American remake of Let the Right One In was one yes. of his starring roles. Um, but blew me away in this one as a similarly enigmatic hard to figure out character but in a very different way um should have won best supporting actor i I thought very much so i thought he was absolute revelation uh in this role um i know that this was a difficult movie for a lot of sort of average moviegoers because it is very slow um there's a lot of stuff that sort of goes unsaid uh, you you have to do kind of a lot of work as a viewer to make connections. And it's one of those movies where what's happening while you're watching it is fairly straightforward, but the meaning and the implications and what you make of it in the end uh, is you have to, uh, to think about. Yes. And if you are sort of paying attention, the twist that comes at the very end is incredible. And this movie, I just was more and more sort of compelled by it the more it went on because it just took some turns that I thought were so unexpected and ends up like having a massive gut punch at the end of the movie. Um, so I but can understand, but still understated. Yes, but in a way that only someone like Jane Campion could sort of definitely handle. Um, this movie caused it was subject of a lot of not really controversy, but sort of notoriety as Sam Shepard. 
said no. some disagreeable Sam Elliott. Sam Elliott, sorry, not Sam Shepard, the playwright. <laughs> Sam Elliott, the the co-star of Roadhouse, um, had some things to say about what westerns are to him, um, which I think he walked back from. Um, right. And then and it had part of the, the the controversy part- with Jane Campion and the the Williams sisters, which was ridiculous and overblown. Well, it's also silly that he was commenting, saying about, oh, the someone from New Zealand making, it's making a American Western. Yeah. Uh, Sergio Leone, anybody? <laughs> yeah, no. exactly. Like, that's part of what makes the Western interesting is that it's such an American genre and having people not from America make them say something about the genre and about America and how people see it. And you could um, say, like, for to connect it to another one of your movies, like Pablo Lorraine, sometimes someone from outside of that culture and country yes. making it actually provides a really interesting perspective. Yes, very much so. Um, really beautifully photographed, incredible score, incredible, incredible performances. Very understated, um, but really, really compelling. Um, Power of the Dog, my number four movie of last year. Yeah. I, I Available on a, Netflix. <laughs> yes. It did have a theatrical run. I saw it in the theater. Uh, I very much like this movie. It's one of those movies that uh, I, I, I want to watch it again sometime. And I, I actually think I want to read the novel sometime to compare mm-hmm. it. Um, um, yeah, I it's one of those movies I know is very good. And I think when I watch it another time, I'll like it even more, mm-hmm. but I thought it was a very strong film. Uh, I definitely recommend it, but not, yeah, it's, it's not for everyone. Even yeah. though it got such universal. Acclaim. I know people who hated it. Um, Normies. Which, yeah. It's not surprising that people would well, have one a thing, very strong negative reaction. Well, one thing you got it. Some people have in their idea like a western, like it is like the yeah. opposite of an action adventure film. But either, yes, it's, it's a dr- drama that's set in the West. Period drama, right? Really? Yes. So, uh, if you have not seen the, it's, it's very much one that you want to like put your phone on silent and turn all the lights off and watch yes. it in one sitting when you're in the mood for a serious film. The less you commit to it, the less you're going to like it. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's a, just a really rich drama. So if you yes. just give yourself over to it and yes. So uh, my number four pick, I don't think I can connect in any way um, <laughs> to yours. It's a documentary called the truffle hunters that like uh, my number five pick was originally released in 2020. It's a documentary from Italy that is about interestingly this uh released at least in the u.s the same year as pig it's a documentary about elderly italian men in their 70s and 80s who go truffle hunting with their dogs and it's i saw this movie got really strong reviews on uh you know i saw that on metacritic it had an 84 rating and i was like oh i was playing at a theater that was near me and i just thought it was so lovely and life affirming and funny and just it it's it it looks like a Wes Anderson film in some ways even though it's a documentary a lot of the shots seem very composed not that he fabricated this a lot of stuff sort of centrally framed right and it's uh very colorful uh the film has two directors their names are uh Michael Dweck and Gregory Kershaw and uh it's on stars and you can rent it on Amazon prime through, if you get the stars channeled, 
um, and you can rent it various ways. But um, I just thought so it's it just was just about them looking, yeah, in the you dirt see the, for truffles. I mean, uh, it's funny that the only parts that aren't really kind of very composed are there's some really fun parts where they put a camera on the dog's head <laughs> yeah. and it's running through the nature and you see it digging and like dirt's flying up uh but yeah you see these men uh haggling for the price of the truffles you see all different aspects of the truffle you see husbands and wives debating about whether the husband should still be going out you know that they could get hurt they could fall down and i don't want to give it away but the last shot in the movie is very simple but i found it so beautiful and moving and it's just like you just like grab your chest and go oh that's so sweet and i just found it um (laughs) an oddly really life-affirming documentary it also fits into the category there's this subcategory of documentaries about old people doing what they really love yeah Uh, and that Jiro dreams of sushi uh Joan Rivers a piece of work Bill Cunningham New York Iris I really like watching old people still going out and doing what they love um I I, yeah I, I thought this was a really lovely documentary a film I think virtually no one saw yeah uh, and most people don't even know of but a documentary from italy called the truffle hunters highly recommend it and take something that you know nothing about and just sort of right. thrust you into the world of of that thing <laughs> yeah it would be an interesting double feature with pig because it's so weird that they came out uh, in this in the, the US truffles were just a thing in yeah truffle hunting yeah <laughs> they do it with their dogs in this film documentary but uh pig's a really strong film too but uh, Truffle Hunters, uh, really good documentary. Uh, so my number three, I'm very basic and all my movies are in English. Um, <laughs> by one of the great American filmmakers, uh, his latest, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza, the uh, period coming of age comedy drama, uh, which was like basically essentially plotless. Uh this is your third period piece that was composed by Johnny Greenwood. Yeah. <laughs> you can see that I'm a certain type. <laughs> right. Um, but this is uh, Johnny Greenwood is a little less involved with this one because the main musical bit in this is just like a kick-ass soundtrack of 70s songs. Um, this is definitely a movie that is nostalgic, um, but in a sort of different way than a lot of the other sort of like stranger things or other real Top maverick exactly sort of servicing of what we think of the 80s to be and just how much like better stuff was this movie isn't really afraid to show the sort of stuff in the 70s that people don't really agree with now and that there are bits of it that maybe weren't the best thing at the time so it it, it gives like a very on its own terms sort of portrayal of 1970s life it doesn't really look at it with that much rose uh colored of glasses but in the same time it's like sort of american graffiti showing the 50s where it really indulges in the sort of specific thing that looking back kind of made that time magical and I think Paul Thomas Anderson didn't re- doesn't really remember 1973. I think he would have been like four years old. Um, but you can definitely tell that he has like an affection for the period 
and for specifically the location, which I think is like the San Fernando Valley in that period, which he just photographs with like so much love. And I mean, it's a beautifully, beautifully shot movie. I think that he was a co-cinematographer with Michael Bauman for this movie. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson, someone who's, it's sort of hard to pin down. It's, he's not like Scorsese with gangster movies or something like that. It, it's hard to sort of pin down like what his specific Adam Sandler writing works in. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Does the British period piece about a dressmaker with yeah. Lewis and <laughs> a Thomas Pynchant novel adaptation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that people um, going to licorice pizza hearing, Oh, it has a 90, whatever on Metacritic got mm-hmm. nominated for best picture, best director. Um, it's very laid back. Nothing really happens. Yes, nothing happens. <laughs> you have to, like, I think some people might be disappointed or overhyped about it. Well, one, I remember in the theater, I saw it um, and you could tell this guy was there with his girlfriend, but the movie ended and he just went, that was it. <laughs> but, but, but that was it. Like, it's yeah. one of, I remember I, like I've had friends who really didn't like boyhood because they were like, nothing happens. I'm like, but that's what life is. And yes. I don't think it's boring at all. <laughs> no, it's like the little moments and the connections you make with people. And it, it's like, you know, people sometimes have said that once upon a time in Hollywood is Tarantino's perhaps uh, most pl- not plot heavy film along yes. with Jackie most Brown. Most sort of hangout of a movie. Right. And, and Licorice Pizza is even less plot heavy. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> It's uh, the like yeah. big things that happen in it are like he gets arrested and released after five minutes. And right. <laughs> he delivers a waterbed to someone's house. Right. Yeah. And I think the part with uh, John Peters played by Bradley. Cooper yes, is absolutely steals the movie. It's like right. the a half an hour in the sort of middle of it. And it's it's episodic in a way, but it's not like any of the episodes are actually like really big events. It's very slice of life and right. but it's also very very sincere and has a real sort of like love for the people it's presenting um and a lot of hang it really is tremendous outstanding yeah. yes and cooper hoffman i think also first time actor um right the sort of two leads are and there's a lot of the supporting actors are you know veterans people you'd recognize sean penn bradley cooper uh, one of the softy brothers who is seems Waits. to be popping up yeah. in everything now. Yeah. Um, and then some other actors who've previously been in Paul Thomas Anderson movies. Very um, briefly, John C. Riley and also his uh, wife, Anderson's wife, Maya Rudolph. Yes. Um, but just like a really, really good period drama. I think it's something that sort of fits in well, the comedy drama. It's not so dramatic. Yes. Comedy me. drama. It fits in the same sort of subgenre as like, uh, Days and Confused and American Graffiti. Um, very much that sort of type of movie. It'll make some interesting double features with those in the future, I can imagine. Um, and I like how specific the movie is. Yes. I like how it really captures a time and a place and it feels so authentic. You feel like the film is not just this generic, oh, let's go back to this year this yes. time period but it's like we're in this very specific place in time and you know the it's so detailed and yet i mean ebert said it roger ebert had said that the more specific a film is the more specific it's made the more universal it ends up being because you yes. feel the authenticity it reminds me of like diner and just sort of how sort of location specific it is 
Right. Like I've never been to the San Fernando Valley, but I, f- I feel like I was when I was watching Licorice Pizza. And you um, want, and it makes you, it makes you, for, it makes you nostalgic for something you may never have had any connection to. Exactly. Yeah. To. <laughs> I'm like, right. yeah, record players are great. Like, wasn't the gas shortage a wild time? <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, really, don't go into it expecting there will be blood the, or. Yeah. I was just about to say that. Yeah. <laughs> anything like that. It's, very much a hangout sort of movie um it's one you sort of need to be on its wavelength um but i think it does a good job of sort of drawing you in uh makes really good use of a period soundtrack uh and two really really good performances by two very earnest you know young actors alana haim and cooper hoffman who were really really convincing as two people you know falling in love and figuring out the world and how to exist in it um so yeah my number three movie (laughs) <laughs> all three movies have been scored by Johnny Greenwood. That was a very nice checkup by you. Um, so what is your number three, Jonathan? My number three, my number four was a documentary, and my number three is a documentary, Flea, F-L-E-E, is the uh, made Oscar history yes. for being the first film nominated for Best Documentary, Best International Film, and Best Animated Film. It's an 89-minute documentary that is uh it was really interesting cinematically because it's a film it's a documentary where most of it is a man retelling his childhood his past and it makes sense to do it through animation it may seem like oh how do you do an animated documentary but the fact is that a lot of what the film is depicting discussing is stuff that happened in the past Mm -hmm. and like you can show photos you can have you know talking head interviews of people talking in the present about what happened in the past but what the film does really brilliantly is it uses you know animation to visualize the the past and mm-hmm. it's about a man who grew up in the middle east and and uh there's the afghan war in the 80s and it's about um you know refugees and it's it's funny because it's a, a an animated movie but it's so deeply human mm-hmm. it's such a human movie you feel so much for these characters and it's a movie that's obviously political, but it's so much a human story. It's it gets you on an emotional level. It's not didactic at all, and it's uh, really just. I found it a deeply moving movie. Um, I just uh, thought it was very powerful, and I think that it's a movie, even though it's a foreign language film. Uh, and it's a documentary. I think that most people, if they watched it, would find it uh, really gripping and moving. Um, it is on Hulu. Um, it's only 89 minutes. My uh, three through five are all under my 90 minutes. <laughs> um, it's going to change very quickly the running time of my next movie. But uh, also, uh, like The Killing of Two Lovers and Spencer, Neon released it. Neon's really been kicking out of the parking last year. Yeah. Uh, with um, they, they will have uh, three Palm Door winners in a row that they've released. Parasite, Tatane, and um, the new film Tri- Triangle of Sadness. Yeah. Uh, they've really been doing it. We're on a hell of a run. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Pig and, yeah, uh, Memoria. Yeah. Crimes of the Future coming out this weekend. This, the Flea is also sort of like a confessional, right? It's like the 
the subject has never told the story before is part of it, right? And that he has like a partner yeah. who doesn't know what his past is. Right. I remember that yes. from the trailer. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting because not only do you see a lot of it is him, uh, is his uh, talking about the past, you see it visualized, but there are parts where like you see him, you know, being interviewed, like it's, you know, it's like what's, what would be filmed is a documentary you see it uh-huh. animated. It's really interesting. Oh, really? Yeah. That's kind of cool. So like you see the guy setting up the camera and the guy lying down and. Uh, oh, wow. Is that yeah. like rotoscoped footage? No, or? I don't think so. It's just animated. Oh, interesting. But um, yeah, I, I really like the film. It's um, there's a thing, you know, I think partially, you know, because of the pandemic, but in 2020, 2021, there's been a lot of really good documentaries. Yeah. So Flee, F-L-E-E. Available on Hulu. Yes. Um, my number two, um, you got to see months and months before I did at the New York Film Festival. Uh, it is The Tragedy of Macbeth, directed by Joel Cohen, uh, starring Denzel Washington as Macbeth. And Francis McDormand as Lady Macbeth, two of our greatest American actors, uh, doing Shakespeare on the big screen. What's not to love? Um, this actually got sort of a mixed reception by Shakespeare hardcore because it doesn't condenses. use. Yes, it condenses the text of parts and um, visually it's quite different than a lot of depictions of Macbeth very often Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are depicted as younger people sort of on the rise and Denzel Washington Francis McDormand are many things but young is not one of them and it yeah, gives a very their 60s <laughs> yes it gives a very different interpretation of there's kind of a world weary quality yes to them. and instead of it being like everything's in front of us it gives a sort of this is our last chance sort of quality that really makes great use of just sort of how economic the play is with how quickly stuff happens where these two people have a very real sense of urgency about having to do it now. And now is the time. Um, Well, Joel Cohen talked about, it may seem odd to make this comparison, but he thought of it as almost like a film noir. Yes. The black and white, but also if you boil down the plot, the premise to its basics, it's about a husband and wife that plan to murder a guy and they do, and it goes horribly wrong. Yes. And there really is this kind of. Postman always rings twice kind of thing about it. Right. And there's this kind of ticking clock uh, thriller quality where you really feel the tension ratcheted it up throughout the movie. The dripping blood is almost yes. like a clicking. Makes uh, incredible clock. use of sound, especially in terms of the consistent sort of pounding, especially once Macbeth has committed the sort of ultimate violent world rupturing act that he does uh, very early in the play. It just does such a good job with the sound design of emphasizing our main character's sort of descent uh, outside of the sort of realms of the human world into his own sort of hellscape. Um, And it's very, very, it's in black and white, the whole movie, very influenced by sort of German expressionism, 1920s, uh, really makes interesting use of sets and uh, really interesting use of like black space uh, he said sure. in interviews that there's two ways you could have kind of done this. You could have writ, 
rented a castle in Scotland, gotten horses or done it very theatrically. And it's interesting how the film is this brilliant mixture of cinematic and theatrical. Yes. And that it really does like look like a Murnau film, a drier film. And, you know, you could tell it looks like in some But also like it's something you could have set up on stage, like a lot of the sets and stuff like that. Right. Um, The guy who plays Banquo, I thought was a a revelation. Uh, I hadn't seen him in anything before. Bertie Carvel is his name. Fantastic eyebrows. Um, And this made a really good use of having a diverse cast. Um, Corey Hawkins as McDuff was fantastic. I thought the woman who played Lady McDuff, Moses Ingram, only had one scene, but was incredible, like heartbreaking, tragic really charismatic is an incredible performance for only like five minutes um isn't she on the obi-wan kenobi yes now and being <laughs> harassed on twitter because of racism? oh is she really yeah of course yeah. there's someone's diverse in Star Wars. yeah but uh and i think the woman who plays the three witches yes Catherine the- hunter yeah. um Very one of the best performance. physical performances i've ever seen um yeah. she plays all three of the weird sisters in one body basically and has this like incredible sort of bird-like aspect um, to her that was just terrifying. Like I was, I was legitimately like a little bit scared of the way is, she portrayed the weird sisters. It is not only, you know, like a film noir, but it's kind of a horror film in yes. a way at times. Yes. Um, and does a really, really good job visualizing the main character's mental state, um, which you know, is sort of the purpose of expressionism in movies, but combined with Shakespeare, I thought it made for a very, very, very rich version of Macbeth that um, I think will be seen in schools for many, many years in the future. I think this will become the go-to version to show kids at school, uh, which I'm very happy about. Uh, available on Apple TV+, Plus. I saw this one in theaters. You saw it at a film festival and got to see the cast in Joel Cohen interviewed, right? I saw it at the New York Film Festival opening night film with Joel Cohen, Denzel Washington, and Francis McDormand, as well as some other cast members in person. Um, this is not news to anyone, but specifically in this movie, Denzel Washington, it's like one of his best performances. Yes. Um, it's just, you know, he's just, I mean, there's nothing more to say. It's, it's, it's Denzel Washington doing Macbeth. How can it not be? <laughs> exactly. It's incredible. Yeah. Yes. So, my number two pick is the only film that is on both of our lists. Mm-hmm. Um, I went from having three films that are under 90 minutes to one that is one minute under three hours. Yeah. I'm talking, of course, about the best picture, best director, best adapted screenplay nominated and best international film winning Drive My Car, mm-hmm. which is a well, wh- why don't you talk about it a little bit? Um, it's the best kind of movie where nothing happens. Um, it's and based it's, on a short story of the same name, and also actually pulls from other short stories from the collection. Yes, that, that short Haruki Murakami is the name yes. of the writer. Men without and, women is the and name the of the director collection. of the film. Is Ryusuke Hamaguchi? Yes. Um, it is ostensibly about a man who directs a multilingual performance of Uncle Vanya in Hiroshima. Uh, but it is also about him coping with the uh, loss of his wife 
and sort of coming to terms with how he's going to interact with art and the world moving forward in the future and whether he still can do the things that he used to be able to do after this traumatic event that's sort of overtaken his his life and he forms a bond with the woman who uh drives his car uh back and forth between where he's staying and where they're rehearsing um this is definitely one you really really want to see without checking your phone or anything like that because it's very much about just sort of starting to watch the movie and getting familiar with its pacing and allowing it to sort of make you on its wavelength and the sort of rhythm and pacing that it's moving at um and sort of i don't think it's boring at all no not at all um it's and it's it's riveting some of the like the scenes just go on for like 10 15 minutes and may just be like a conversation between two people in the back of a car but you were just like hypnotic yes you're just like glued to the screen you're like oh my god this is like you know doing something that is not something every movie sort of is capable of doing and draws you into sort of these people's world and really makes you sort of understand all these sort of different characters and where they're coming from and what they're trying to do and why they are where they are and um and it's a film i think about what art can and cannot do for people in the real world and it's a film about connection in a weird (laughs) in a really weird way i said well that's it makes such good use of like the being a movie about someone making art because it, a lot of the movie is about communication, the things you don't say or the things you wish you had said. I was and, saying in a weird way that, like I was saying in the previous episode, like Top Gun Maverick, Drive My Car, very similar <laughs> movies, both about machines and mis. Yeah, but they are in a weird way. They're both about communication. Yes. And about loss. Uh, I mean, yeah. And there's both films have characters that don't speak. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's about the only similarities between them but, but the, the I, central thing is uh, uncle vanya and it's a performance where everyone speaks a different language uh you know some people speak english some people well, i don't know that everyone speaks a different language do they so that one and some of them speak a lot of them speak different languages yeah um there's like i don't think most of them speak japanese though but there's one that's uh, doesn't one does sign english. language one does it in english one does it in korean um, I guess everyone else does it. I know one person does it in Chinese, I, but I guess some other people do it in Japanese. But either way, they're all speaking different. Yes, multilingual production. Um, also like a multimedia production because it like writes the text on like a screen behind them. It looked it looked like a really unique performance. I was very interested in seeing their version of Uncle Vanya at the end. Um. But just saying, it blew me away. And it's, you know, just one of those movies that just, you know, is about human beings and human It's beings about nothing and everything. Yeah. It well, just, not, you know, not that it's about nothing, but it, it, it's like you said, it, it seems like nothing really happens in the movie, but it says so much. Yes. And it's so rich. And it's, if we haven't made clear, it's your number one. Yes. Film. Yes. And it's, you know, you really feel like you've been through something when you're done with it. And Right feel like you've gained some sort of understanding about you know yourself and other people and the world you live in which is the most we can ask for a movie and like basically the most a movie can do for 
for people. Um, is... It's a, it's it's a it's a sit, but it's not a tough sit. It's it's no. like a it's a commitment. But if you go with it, if you if you'll excuse the pun, take the ride. It's really <laughs> worth it. I think. Yes, and you know, it's a really really rewarding fulfilling movie experience my Um, mom who has good taste but you know isn't like you know doesn't see hardcore art house movies she saw it in a theater and she said and she really liked it thought it was very good she's like you know she's really good drama i don't know anyone who's seen it that didn't like it yeah it's Um, the type of movie that like people are just not going to see it unless they were like an oscar completist and if you're going to eat i mean i think even most people that like oh i gotta see all the oscar nominated like this would be the one they don't see (laughs) <laughs> yeah but it's on hbo max yes and like we said it's very much one you want to watch and even though it's two hours and 59 minutes long you want to watch really, it in one setting yeah you want to watch it in one sitting put your phone away and just give yourself over to it incredibly cool. rewarding incredibly beautiful um you just love it when a movie comes out like this and you watch it and you know, it's not like you necessarily, I mean, I did have high expectations because by the time I saw it, it had won all these critics awards, but um, just absolutely blows you away and is everything you want a movie to be. So very high praise, but it is my number one movie of last year. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's a small movie. It's very dialogue character driven, but it's really brilliant and yes. says a lot. So do you want me to do my number one? Or yes. Is that all we have left now? Yes. Okay, uh, my number one film is a sequel, a part two. It is The Souvenir Part Two. Uh, I saw this film at the New York Film Festival last year with the writer-director Joanna Hogg in attendance. Um, I was a big fan of the previous, the first film, The mm-hmm. Souvenir, uh, which was released in 2019. Critical indie darling when it came Yes. Out. Uh, a film I can imagine that the audience rating would be different from the critical rating. <laughs> yes. um, I The first movie, I'll be honest, the first half of it, it's right about two hours long. I was like, oh, this movie's good. You know, I, but it's like as a 90, yeah. 91 on Metacritic. And then it's not like all of a sudden, but in the second half, it like hit me like a sledgehammer. And it takes I on just, a very different aspect. Yeah. And it's, um, I thought the first, the first film was in my top 10 of 2019 and part two is as good if not better than the first part um it's not quite as heavy uh as the first one they have the 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 first one is pretty sad yes (laughs) uh the second one has more humor in it uh it's not a comedy but uh in a really weird way it's like the scream two uh uh for the souvenir because uh, well, both films, just the basic premise, the both films. Now, I don't want to give anything away about the first film. I'll, I'll phrase it carefully. She's uh, a film student. Yes. Okay. So uh, we have Honor. Uh, Swinton Byrne. Right. Uh, Swinton Byrne. Yes. It, now, this is the daughter of the actress Tilda Swinton. Who's in the first and, movie. Yes. Uh, yes. Her name. Uh, yeah, Honor Swinton Byrne. Yes. And she plays basically not in name, but she's basically playing Joanna Hogg, who went yes. to film school in London in the 80s. And the first film is about a relationship she has with a man. And the an second, older man. Yes. Who works for the government. And the second film is about what happens after the relationship. And this the reason I say in a weird way, it's like Scream 2 is that 
this part two is largely about her making her student film about what happened in the first film. So the way that stab in scream is them making a film about what happens in quote unquote, the real world of scream. <laughs> uh, that's what's happened in the souvenir part two. And both films are just beautifully shot and just so delicately crafted. They're just, they're quiet and sensitive and they're just so perfectly realized. It has such a, a deft hand. John Hogg wrote and directed it. And it feels so personal. And you just, it, 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 you feel that there is such an artistic vision behind the film about someone's artistic vision and <laughs> their creativity. And you see a, a, a number of minutes of her student film towards the end of the movie and it really is the real like, student film no the one that's created okay. the, but it looks it, it it's very reminiscent of the red shoes the ballet sequence oh yeah where you have like a woman kind of running through her life and it's like these incredible sets like the end um, of spencer what, what <laughs> don't happens? remember when it sort of totally gets away from the plot and she's just sort of dancing in the hallway and yeah but she's her just childhood self to her, but, but, self to her adult self right well but this one she like you it's like a real you know it's a film a student film so it's it's yeah. very much like the red shoes but um like the truffle <laughs> hunters it has a great ending that i don't want to give away but it it's just it, uh, well i'll just say this look up and if you've never uh um her you got to watch the first film yes obviously um but you should listen to um an interview or two with jonna hogg uh to know what she sounds like i'll just say uh oh really fourth wall breaking very it's, i mean it's very I mean, much a meta narrative right yeah there's just a little thing at the end that's really yeah it's i i just think it's a beautiful film and it's one of the better movies i've ever seen about movie a movie about movies wow up there with eight and a half and sunset boulevard i'm not saying it's like as good as that but it's, it's, it's one of the in best. that company it was no it's it's i'll just say it's one of the best movies i've ever seen about making movies yeah and um i just and tilda swinton is in it as <laughs> which is obviously one. gonna make you interested <laughs> right and well what's really interesting it's like not just within the film layer upon layer of like you know, art and life, yeah. but in the real life, because like I said, uh, the daughter uh, told us, uh, it, uh, Honor Swinton uh, Byrne is basically playing Jonna Hogg, and Tilda Swinton actually went to college film school with Jonna Hogg, and so it's like her daughter is playing her, and her mother's playing her, and, it, it, uh -huh. and she starred <laughs> in her student film in real life back in the 80s. So it's all like very kind of self-reflective. Collapsing of time and space and right. fiction and nonfiction. Yeah, I just, I, I just, it's a movie that very few people saw because I think very few people saw the first saw the film. The first and one. And, very few, <laughs> and even less people saw the part two. But uh, it's The crossover event of the year. <laughs> I know. I mean, it was funny that like in the Marvel movies, like Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Badness, it says like Doctor Strange will return. At the end of the souvenir, it's like, you know it says like part two is coming it says yeah. something uh but uh i i'm i it's funny i've all these are the only films i've seen by her she's done a a, a few other films and uh, i think she's Mar much more well known in britain than outside right. of it 
Um, yes, uh, Martin Scorsese is an executive producer of the films because he was um, given some of her movies and he really became a fan of hers. Mm-hmm. And um, the A24 podcast actually had um, a, 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 a quite lengthy interview where they're talking to each other, Scorsese oh, really? and Jonah Hogg. Yeah. And um, she has a new film that's supposed to come out sometime this year, at least premiered a film festival, a kind of not a horror film, but like a haunted house, like going back to the past um, called, uh, I think, The Eternal Daughter that also stars uh, Tilda Swinton. Uh, So uh, Tilda Swinton is working. Yeah. And she's going to be, I mean, she's like in everything. Yeah. The eternal daughter is the title of her new film, but yeah. Souvenir part two, it's uh, not free on any of the streaming services, but you can rent it on Apple TV. Amazon, and I think YouTube. the part one was streaming on Amazon. I don't know if it still is. And I know it's on canopy because a 24 films are on canopy, but yeah, like I said, you gotta watch the first part first. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I just think it's a really beautiful film it's not for everyone it's quiet and you know it's uh, i do recommend it's not like the worst i've seen but i kind of recommend putting on the subtitles because it's a very quiet movie and they have somewhat thick accents (laughs) but um yeah uh yeah it's not on amazon anymore but the original one is on canopy it's on showtime so it's available to rent on all the places for a dollar 99 or whatever yes so to recap my top five uh, Spencer, directed by Pablo Lorraine. Power of the Dog, directed by Jane Campion. Licorice Pizza, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. The Tragedy of Macbeth, directed by Joel Cohen. And Drive My Car, directed by Ryusuke Hamaguchi. And my top five, uh, number five, The Killing of Two Lovers. Four, The Truffle Hunters. Three, Flea. Two, Drive My Car. And one, The Souvenir Part Two. So, better late than never. It only took us Six months, five months. I don't know how these dates work, but midway into 2022 yeah. to give you our best of 2021. Um, but you know, the Oscars were late this year. All these are available. Well, most are available for streaming or rent. So you can get a nice sort of perspective on the year that was 2021, which I thought was was a, a good year for movies altogether. Um not super satisfied ultimately with the way the Oscars went. Oh, when are we ever really? No. <laughs> there were a lot of best picture nominees that I thought were, I, I, I didn't like strongly dislike a lot of them, but I just was, there were, you could tell from my top five, there were a yes. lot that <laughs> got zero Oscar nominations or, but drive by car. I mean, one what was it the three major national critics awards, something like that. Yeah. Um, for one of like seven movies or something like that to have done so um in the last few years there has been uh one nominee uh at least for uh, for a foreign language film but it's still kind of surprising that this almost three hour very talky japanese movie about a production of uncle varnia (laughs) yeah nominated and like you i've never seen any films by this director yeah still haven't the only one he has one that's like five and a half hours long yeah, but it seems hour. like he is a pretty big deal in Japan, um, from yeah. what I've gathered. He had two um, films come out that year, of uh, uh, last year. It's crazy. And that one was really well-reviewed, too. It was called um, Wheel of... What, what was it called? Uh, it's called Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. That one's only two hours and one minute. Uh, but he did... I, th- I think into- we are getting into a time where international movies are becoming a little more mainstream. 
Um, to who? Well, at least to the Oscar voting body. Yeah, because um, they invited more people. <laughs> yeah. But like 99.8%. But no, most people. But I drive well, my squid car. Squid Game. Squid Game. Yeah, Squid Game. I think Parasite did cross over a bit. Um, yeah. Drive My Car didn't nearly, but. I think, you know, South Korean movies, I think, just set like a, a record for most awards by a single country at Cannes. Um, so yeah. maybe we're in the East Asian renaissance. With Everyone, everything, everywhere at all at once. Isn't <laughs> that an American movie? I know, but it has an Asian cast. It's, yeah, but I, I think one of the directors is uh, Asian American. Yeah. Um, but yeah, best of 2021, better late than never. Uh, anything you. else, Jonathan? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to talk about the Oscars. Yeah, I think we, have, we never the, really, we never really talked about. Never the really recapped it. No. Um, no, we're not going to mention the thing. <laughs> it's best to be ignored. And, and that's that was so long ago now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if you're going to pay attention to any top five, uh, pay attention to ours. And Oops. I and I recommended some that I think were very underseen. And I yes, uh, so you get some. Uh, you know, nice little variety sleeper hits exactly well not hits but sleeper flea, hits. flea is one that i i really should have seen by now and same goes with souvenir um but flea is available on hulu um like you mentioned so yeah it sounds like one that most people if, if they watched it would you know be blown away by so yeah i'm definitely gonna try to check that out um but yeah best of 2021 thank you for listening uh <laughs> i think for our best of 2022 it maybe won't take till june 2023 we'll try to do it by the end of january at least <laughs> yeah exactly next year um yeah. but yeah thank you for listening we will be back with you guys next time